This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for Episode 51 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Graham Cluley is well known in the cybersecurity industry as a popular speaker, writer, and co-host of the Smashing Security podcast. He joins us this week for a wide-ranging conversation, including his humble beginnings writing software to protect against malware, before that was really even a thing, his thoughts on the latest trends and techniques the bad guys are using, and how we as a community should protect ourselves against them. And of course, we'll get his take on threat intelligence, and why he thinks it's playing an ever-increasing role as organizations stand up their cyber defense strategies. Stay with us. It's been a long and twisty journey, to be honest. Uh, it all started uh, around about 1991, 1992, when I was a poor, impoverished computer programmer uh, at a college and looking for a job. And one day, someone saw one of the computer games which I'd been written, uh, writing. And the person who saw that game was Dr. Alan Solomon, who was the UK's leading antivirus expert at the time. He was sort of the British version of uh, John McAfee, although... Hmm. Not quite, uh, well, actually quite a big character, but, but maybe it's, it's hard to beat John McAfee, right? It is, yes, yes, <laughs> he is a particular interesting case. And uh, Alan said, you know, love the games. If you want a job, let me know. And so I contacted him and I was the first ever programmer of Dr. Solomon's antivirus toolkit for Windows. And uh, that was one of the very first antivirus programs for Windows. What was the state of, of, uh, of security in those days? Writing an antivirus for Windows, how bad was it? Well, for Windows, there was no Windows-specific malware. The threat hmm. really was largely floppy disks. Um, ah. Many computers still weren't networked even. Uh, certainly people weren't on the Internet. Right. But the, the most common type of malware which was spread were floppy disk viruses like Form and Stoned. Really... There wasn't a huge need for an antivirus program for Windows at the time, but I think it was mostly being written for marketing purposes. Actually, I remember at my interview, um, I said, look, Alan, I've, I've never written a Windows program before. And he said, it doesn't matter. He said, we're not going to sell any of it. We're going to sell the OS2 version because any business which is serious about computing is investing in OS2, hmm. not Windows. <laughs> how did that well, work out in the long run? Yeah. <laughs> I think we know how that ended up, don't we? <laughs> right. Interesting. <laughs> Much to, I, IBM chagrin, but uh, <laughs> turns out sometimes the best technology doesn't always win. And arguably, OS2 was a much more grown-up operating system and mm. was probably a better solution for companies than Windows, but Windows won. And over time, we began to see Windows malware, the DOS malware, the floppy disk malware began to disappear. And before long, we began to see email aware worms and internet and people were connecting their computers and the problem exploded. I mean, when I started in the computer security industry, there were something like 200 computer viruses every month. And I remember journalists speaking to us and saying, you know, how are you going to cope when there are 10,000 viruses in total? How are you going to be able to get all those definitions onto the floppy disk, which you put in the post each month? What we had to do is we had to go to a three and a half inch floppy disk, you know, right. more, more capacity. As, as you uh, do. <laughs> uh, but um, today... What is it? Something like 400,000 unique samples of malware are spotted by labs every day. It's mm. more than two every second. So the, the, the problem has grown to totally science fiction proportions, which we never imagined. 
Uh, and that is one of the central problems which we face today and how security companies have changed is way back then, we took apart all the viruses by hand. We could write up detailed descriptions of every single quirk of the virus because we had the luxury of time. And today, we're using computers and technology to do a lot of the analysis for us. And frankly, many times, you're not that bothered about exactly what it does. It's more about, can you stop it? Can you prevent it uh, from entering your organization? I, I used to do this party trick at shows. Um, I'd be standing on the trade booth and I'd shout out to people, name any virus and I'll tell you what it does. And I used to be able to do that. <laughs> And <laughs> I think it was probably, what are we now, 2018? Oh, crumbs. Yeah, it was It was probably about 15 years ago or so where I thought, I can't do this anymore because the problem has got so big and that there's no guarantee that I'll be able to actually tell them exactly what it does. Yeah. Um, but well, back then you could. And, and I mean, obviously the velocity has increased all around. The computers have gotten faster. The rate at which these uh, yes. malware is being released has gotten faster. I, I want to just go through some of the threats that we're facing today and, and get your take on them. Because, you know, in the past couple of decades, uh, sort of to your point, there are things going on that I think for those of us who've been around for a while, we couldn't really imagine. We, we lacked the imagination to imagine to imagine the sorts of things that we're dealing with today. The, the, the idea that we'd be dealing with these crypto mining uh, yes. situations was unimaginable. What's your take on that? Well, it's, it's, it's bonkers, isn't it? I mean, I'm calling it crypto minomania at the moment because <laughs> everyone is jumping on the crypto mining uh, bandwagon. Whether it is legitimate websites looking for a way to generate income because they found, you know, too many people are running ad blockers and it's causing... Or they're making not making enough revenue, or it's the bad guys planting Android malware into the Google Play Store, or uh, criminals hacking into websites, or uh, poisoning plugins, as we saw recently with all those government websites which were running the uh, Browse Aloud plugin, which was secretly uh, crypto mining in the background. It's it's fascinating and. It's very different. It, what we're seeing, actually, maybe is a slight trend away from ransomware, because ransomware yeah. certainly, I think, was one of the big stories of the last few years. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It is. And it's it sort of changed. You know, I think we're seeing a change. And they are very different things. Although there's this Bitcoin or Monero element, which is common between them, you know, you pay the ransomware um, author through through some cryptocurrency. Ransomware is very visual. It, it's announcing its presence, you know. Even the people in the accounts department are going to know something's gone funny with Microsoft Excel when the big red screen comes up in the skull with a countdown telling you you have to pay up, otherwise your files are going to be deleted. Crypto mining, on the other hand, it's in its interest to keep as quiet as possible. Right. Um, it, it wants to be as present for as long as possible in order to make money. Um, one of the big giveaways, of course, is that your fan is going, you know, is yeah. running so hard and hot. <laughs> and that's the part that's I don't the, get. You know, if, if the if the notion is to stay under the radar, then why not, you know, limit the it just seems like crooks can't help but be greedy. Why not limit the amount of processor time that you're using yes. to not have that fan spin up? To me, the you know, the perfect crypto miner would be one that runs on a security camera that's twenty feet up on a wall looking at a at a right. at a parking lot, is still doing its job. And nobody even knows that in its spare processing cycles, it's mining away at Bitcoin or Monero or whatever. And you know what? I'm sure that will come. I'm sure just as we have seen IoT devices and IP cameras and those sort of devices compromised and hijacked by criminals to launch botnets, I am sure we will begin to see more incidents where 
they're actually being used for crypto mining because i mean who's going to notice that something like that has happened the other thing of course is if you are infecting computers you could be a little bit sneaky and say well look people leave their computers on overnight maybe we should only do this between the hours of 3 a.m and 6 a.m you know mm. let's go full throttle then or uh, maybe we should tie it in with the screensaver or something. You know, if, if we identify someone hasn't used their computer for a while, then we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll assume that they've walked away. All kinds of tricks which could be done. But I, I think the, the whole irony that so many people are jumping on this crypto mining bandwagon is look at the evidence as to how much these guys are actually making. And it, the indication so far is that it may not be as profitable as people imagine. When we saw these government websites recently hijacked by the poisoned plugin the reports indicated that the bad guys only made 24 dollars four thousand websites mm. were compromised now admittedly only for about four or six hours but 24 it's, it's not really worth it is it well and i can't help wondering was this is this truly a case of ransomware folks switching over to something else or is this uh, them seeing a potential new opportunity, you know, dipping their toes in the pond yeah. of a new opportunity to see, well, the, the the cost of going into this business is low. Let's give it a shot. I think I'm absolutely sure that is happening. Yeah, I, I think and I think historically we've seen a lot of that. People attempting something saying, does this work? Doesn't it work? And when they discover the things which do work, they say, OK, well, forget the ones which didn't. We're just concentrating on this. That's why. You continue to see so much CEO fraud, business email compromise, right, where you can get a huge return just by exploiting a worker who makes a bad decision, is tricked into thinking you're the CEO or the CFO, and they move money into a bank account. You know, the rewards are considerable, but it works. That's why you continue to see phishing attacks, which aren't very sophisticated, but boy, oh boy, they work. And that's why we continue to see letters from Nigeria even still working, <laughs> although you and I, you know, when we get those things, we sort of laugh and go, oh, this is so obvious. It's so easy and cheap to send it to a million people. It only requires a tiny percentage of vulnerable recipients to fall for it, and it's been worth their while. And I, I'm sure the tried and trusted is going to carry on being a problem for years and years to come. Let's speak to that with the phishing and, and, and uh, sort of broader that whole notion of insider threats. I, I think, mm. you know, we, we think about, I think top of mind for me anyway, when I think insider threats is the malicious person inside the company who's, you know, maybe an outsider is paying them, you know, on the side yeah. to sneak data out. But it seems to me like as common, if not even more so, is the person who's just going about their business at work and inadvertently causing security issues. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure that happens more often than not. I, I, you know, you're going to be pretty unlucky if someone has come into your organization specifically with the, the thought of somehow stealing data from you. I'm sure it does happen when people are leaving the company under a cloud or go into a new job. They think it may help them to take some data with them. And there have been cases of, for instance, security guards at banks who've planted key login malware in order to help criminal gangs um, steal large amounts of money. But I think normally what we're dealing with here is accidental. It's people who would be horrified to realize that they've put their company and their customers' data at risk because of simple mistakes they've made. And sometimes the problems, I think, for IT teams, are, it, there is this real challenge for IT teams is that they're often viewed as the department which says no. Mm -hmm. So if you work in marketing or something like that and you want, oh, you know, we've got a new product to launch. We want to give this new service to our customer. And you go to the IT team and say, hey, can you help us set up a website which does this? And the IT team says, have you seen what we've got to do? 
no, you can't do that, or the, you know, or you have to wait your turn, and it's going to be eighteen months until we can do that project because we're doing all this essential stuff. And then someone in the marketing department says, "Well, I'm a bit handy with websites, or my nephew Brian, he can help us as well." And so you get these little sort of shadow IT departments, right? Building systems which represent the company, which haven't gone through the you know past the vetting of the IT team, and I'm sure that's why sometimes. We hear these stories about companies who've left data completely accessible on the internet, customer data which hasn't been encrypted, maybe an Amazon S3 bucket, which has been misconfigured. So it's publicly, you know, anyone can go and scoop it up. And companies keep on being embarrassed by this. So sometimes it's been done with good intentions, but they haven't considered all the security issues or they've made an honest mistake or they chose a dumb password or they left their private keys lying around on a GitHub repository or whatever it was. And it's poor you and me and the members of the public who end up being exposed because our credentials are there for anyone to, you know, just rifle through. I had a friend who worked at uh, a company where they weren't allowed to use Dropbox for security reasons. Yeah. And uh, but everybody in the company knew that if you if someone sent you something on Dropbox, the way to get it was to log on to the Wi-Fi and from the Starbucks that was downstairs in the corner of the building, uh, log into that Wi-Fi, and then Bob's your uncle. You can get your Dropbox yeah. files. And and but that's you know what what a what, what sort of what a representative tale of what we're up against here. And that is so common. I mean, it it, it is exactly that, is that you don't, as the IT department, want to be the uh, the part of the company which says no. You want to be able to say, well, tell you what, could you do it this way? Let's give you an alternative method of doing whatever it is that you want to do. Maybe it's sharing big files online or something which has been approved by us, um, which will be our preferred system for doing it. And that's what we would like you to use. So make it as fluent and flexible as possible for people to do their job because they're experts at doing the marketing. They're experts in the accounts department. They may not be experts at IT. You're the expert in IT. Give them a good system which works and works safely and which you have visibility over. You can make sure that they it's been used securely with proper passwords and maybe two-factor authentication as well. Um, because otherwise, people will find a way. You know, people, it, it's like water, you know. <laughs> it always finds some route through. Mm. Um I'm, I'm sitting here in a rather damp house at the moment as I'm in the UK, so I, I know that only too well. <laughs> uh, so I, I, wanna, I want, do want to, uh, to focus on threat intelligence uh, for a few mm. minutes. And uh, from, from your point of view, uh, does it seem as though this is something that's getting more attention? Are more companies finding themselves uh, making good use of threat intelligence? I think more and more they are. I, and I, I think actually... One of the things which is driving it and suddenly helping it um, come into companies is that finally the board are understanding the threat, or at least they're understanding the repercussions of being hacked. Hmm. They've seen the stories of other big companies who've suffered, some companies who've lost hundreds of millions because of a hack or because of a data (laughs) breach or because of a malware infection. And so they're more likely to rubber stamp uh, the IT department saying, you know what, we need greater visibility as to what is actually going on out there. And we need some method to sort the signal from the noise. Because there, you know, this comes back to what we mentioned earlier about the, the, the vast increase in the amount of malware. It's not just malware, of course. It's vulnerabilities. It's the communications of criminals online as well. There's so much information out there. And although it's possible you know, to scoop up some of that data, to really 
make use of it, you've got to turn that threat data, you've got to give it some context. Yeah, it also strikes me that there's value in having an outsider help with that, to sort of get, yes. get out of your own way, your own predispositions, your own biases. Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, it is just human nature to carry on doing things the way you've always done them. If you've come from another company and this is how we did computer security, that's what you're comfortable with. And that, that frankly, is a, a big enough job for many people um, rather than trying to, you know, uh, sort out the huge amount of data out there. So if you can find companies who are experts at both collecting the data, but then actually doing the analysis, giving it some context, then you can begin to think, OK, well, what's the likelihood of this particular threat being a, a, a danger to my company? You know, what have we as a company got to lose? That's the other thing, you know, looking at your own company and really understanding yourself as a company and the data which you have and what your crown jewels are, understanding what the real risks are. And then you can you can match that up with what are the threats which actually concern us? What are the things which are growing? What are the things which are trending? which potentially could pose a threat to us. And hopefully, with a you know a good threat intelligence solution, that's something which you can then find a way to communicate with the board as well, because they certainly should be interested in this. As you're looking ahead, sort of looking towards the horizon, uh, what do you sense is, is coming next? Do you feel as though in the industry, you know, we sort of joke about how uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning had, had been the buzzwords, certainly yeah. for the last year, do you feel that that's dying down some and what might be the next thing to replace it? Well, I, I have every confidence marketing departments will come up with a new buzzword, which will <laughs> once everyone is saying machine learning and artificial intelligence, there's going to have to be something else, isn't there? Mm, mm. Um, which people are going to start to start mentioning as well. I think in, in terms of the threat, um, we are going to see more of the same because that's working very nicely. We're going to see more attacks which are happening stealing vast amounts of data i don't have a lot of confidence that uh, many companies have still properly secured themselves and have got on top of this problem some of the old threats are going to continue as well i think a big problem around the future is the appalling security of internet of things devices mm. um, with the lack of updating infrastructure and as more and more businesses bring those kind of devices into their organization there's potential damage which can be done to them as well even little things like for instance many of these iot devices will be using open source code um, within them Mm. and as we've seen over the last year or so sometimes a, a, a piece of open source code which is used hugely and widely across the world and has been around for 20 years is found to have some serious bug in it it's like, well, that code is used in thousands of different devices. How are we going to get all those devices to update and fix themselves? You know, that That's one of those sort of fears which comes to me. I, I also heard the other day that um, one in 10 households uh, in the UK, and I think a similar figure in the United States, now have these home assistant dinguses. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not allowed to mention brand names. because I probably, <laughs> Talk, I'll Talking pro- cylinders, well, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if I mention their name, they'll wake up right, and exactly. do what I command. And the people them. will so send allowed- us the bill for the dollhouse that they buy, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> so, but I mean, as far as we know, let's touch wood, um, there's nobody, uh, th- th- there's no known sort of serious security vulnerabilities in those at the moment. I imagine the major leaders have got uh, some decent updating infrastructure, but if a serious vulnerability was found in those, that's potentially a big threat and a threat to our privacy as well. Uh, and, and that's something which worries me. And we've, 
it, it's interesting, you know, we were talking about what the threats were 25 years ago. You know, history repeats itself. In the last year or so, we've seen this return of destructive malware, disk wiping, mm. the damage which can be done to an organization when something which maybe was sent in by a state-sponsored actor is zapping your drives, losing your data, and just causing immense amounts of destruction, whether through ransomware and encryption or just simply wiping. No, that that continues to be a real threat. And so you need as an organization to think about how are we going to recover in a prompt and safe manner? You know, how are we going to deal with those sort of disasters happening to us? How much of an impact do you think GDPR is going to have? Well, it's already had a huge impact in terms of the hours being spent by companies making sure that they're going to be GDPR compliant, mm. you know, huge amount. And some companies, fascinatingly, are even like deleting their email database and saying, you know what, we don't need a newsletter. We're not going to do one of those anymore because it's just too much of a hassle confirming whether these people really wanted to receive it or not. Um, I think there's an additional challenge for some companies outside of Europe who maybe have been a bit slow to wake up that, yes, this does connect you, you know, does concern you as well, whether you are in Europe or not. Um, this is going to have an impact on you. What remains to be seen, of course, is we know that there's the potential here for massive uh, fines. Whether those will actually come through or not, I don't know. But if we do begin to see those, I think it's going to really uh, wake up a lot of people on the board that this is a problem which needs to be dealt with. And unfortunately, if you haven't started thinking about it yet, frankly, it's it's kind of too late, isn't it? I mean, yeah. yeah. Don't, you know, you know, start start working on it, sure, but um, you are behind the curve by some way because other companies have been working on this now for some years, getting ready uh, for this. It's fascinating to me when you sort of overlay the differences that different cultures have with their attitude towards privacy. You know, we joke here in the U.S. Mm. that um, Americans are always willing to trade their privacy for convenience, and, uh, you know, Europeans, not so much. And so the fact that GDPR is going to cause global companies to adopt perhaps a, a more European stance when it comes to privacy, I think is fascinating. I, I've actually heard some lawyers here in the U.S. who are not happy that uh, that political influence is possible, that they get to exert their will over mm. us through mm. uh, enacting something like this. Yes, well, you know, <laughs> we, we've sometimes felt it the other way around, of course. Yeah, um, touche, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, so the boot for once is on the other foot. But I like to think that this is a positive step. If I put myself in the position of the users, um, then, you know, greater privacy, greater care being taken over your data has to be a super thing. Mm -hmm. And, of course, if we see this as being a success uh, GDPR being a success, chances are that other countries and territories will decide we're going to put in place something similar and we'll follow that model. And uh, I think it's important, of course, not to view GDPR as a finishing line. You know, it's 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 part of the journey, isn't it? it mm. It's like this is the minimum level. I would love to begin to see in 2018 more companies actually promoting themselves on the basis of we're the company which actually cares about your privacy and security. And we're that's, that's going to be one of our bullet points as to why you should use us. Human nature being what it is, I think most people are more influenced by bells and whistles and whether your dingus can talk to you in different voices or whether it comes in space grey or not. But, <laughs> uh, it, it's, but I would love to see that privacy 
and security thing become more of an issue because actually people are fed up with having their identities stolen. People find it a complete nuisance. There is some fatigue setting in, but people are losing confidence with companies. And maybe there's an opportunity for more businesses here to say, no, you know what? This is going to be in the DNA of our company. We're not just going to pay lip service to this. We really mean it. And everything we do, we are going to consider the privacy and security implications of it. Our thanks to Graham Cluley for joining us. His website is GrahamCluley.com, and he is co-host of the Smashing Security podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll take the time to rate it and leave a review on iTunes. It really does help people find the show. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett, the show is produced by Pratt Street Media, with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.